Today is January the 8th, so we are at the start of a new year, 2018, and we would absolutely love it if you guys can join us for this whole year in review. This is a year in review talking about all the things swallowing related, all the hot topics. We literally have 10 topics that we came up with. Uh, we're not very good at staying on topic. That <laughs> technically leaves us about six minutes per topic. You might hear some kind of scary tone suggesting I think you guys need to move on. Um, <laughs> of course, they might need to do this if I get too hot and heavy mm -hmm. on a topic, right? We tend to stay in our soapbox for extended periods of time. We actually are, we sleep on a soapbox. I mean, I thought we dream this or stuff. Or stay awake on a soapbox. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> so um, we would like to especially welcome our special guest, Ed Bice. Uh, you guys know him as somebody who is a big social media presence, but in addition is a representative for ACS, which stands for Accelerated Care... Plus ACP. ACP. Always thinking Accelerated Care Services. Accelerated Care Plus. So, Ed, do you want to introduce yourself any differently since I messed up the company name? <laughs> no, I think that that's great. <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. We've had a fun day. We'll probably talk about some of the things that happened today. And mm -hmm. Just thanks for having me. Happy to have you. Ed is underselling himself. He has a lot of clinical experience and is an avid consumer of the literature and uh, will certainly make for an interesting discussion today. Absolutely. All right, so the first thing that we have on our list, obviously, is Easton. I swear, Easton is like the abortion of like swallowing topics. <laughs> <laughs> it never gets old. Analogy bell, I know, right? It never gets old. Um, so what do we say? Uh, why do we think that this is still the hot topic? Why is in a year review, what happened in 2017 or didn't happen in 2017 that makes this electrical stimulation a topic we need to review again? Wow, I think that one of the things that makes eSTEM so um, much of a topic is that people want it to work. You know, our PT and OT colleagues have these modalities mm -hmm. and we want something and we want something that we can put on a patient and it makes them better. It's very mm -hmm. tangible. Yes, and, and because it's such a sensory experience, it it's all, you know, probably has some placebo effect as well. The patient has this idea that I'm getting better, the yeah. therapist thinks I'm doing something, mm -hmm. and so everyone's happy, mm -hmm. even though we don't know why we're doing it or what we're doing with mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. yeah. What do you think, Alicia? Yeah, I think it's... Um, oh, I think it's a hot topic also for reasons that Ed mentioned, but it's also a topic that is sort of uncharted territory. So what's interesting is that while there is research on electrical stimulation, probably more than any other treatment that's in our field, it's still a treatment that we know little about. But do we know little about it? So let's think about it this way. If I said, guys, okay, do you think that people do chin tucks more than they do Easton? A collective yes, yes right? Yes, of course. There's nobody who's like, no, I'm anti-chin tuck, right? But, um, well, maybe there's one person screaming in, in front of their car like, <laughs> I'm anti-chin tuck. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, there's not controversy surrounding it. But how many papers have shown clear physiologic underpinnings of chin tuck? I don't know if we have any therapy, any treatment that has a clear... You're right 
-hmm. outcome that this is meant for this population, not this population. This is the dose. This is the bolus flow to expect. And I don't know, maybe we're not unique. Maybe there are PTs and OTs are like screaming like, hey, we're the same way. But um, it does make me wonder, we have more studies, but do we have more information? No, we don't because they're not consistent. They're not looking at specific parameters. The designs are not good. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, we have tons of studies, but what did we learn from those studies? Not a lot. I think, I think what's interesting is we, we're talking about a divide here to me where there's research and there's um, data that has been presented about electrical stimulation, but where I think some of the, where the controversy comes is clinicians wanting a practice guideline on it. Mm -hmm. So some sort of, um, I mean, ASHA submits and publishes practice guidelines for certain things. And I think that that's what clinicians crave is, okay, there's all this research. What do I do? Just tell me what to do. Just what's the answer? What's the, what is the dose? What's the placement? What's the population? So I know exactly what to do. And it's that gap between taking what we know in the research and using that to critically think about what to do with the patient versus just wanting the answers. So, so can I tell you what I think I saw a lot of in 2017 as it relates to Easton? Yes. Um, in 2017, at least on Facebook and uh, comments and questions that people have had to me in CEU courses over the years, it is not a question of, it used to be when I first started, should I use, use Easton, yeah. right? Now the question is, which one should I use, right? Yeah. That's yeah, the big so. question. It's a question like, hey, guys out there, I don't want to fight about if I should use Eastem, but which of the trainings should I go to? Yep. Go. And then people just like go crazy. Like those are the ones that have 500 comments and, and turns into like, you know, a mud fight and whatnot. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I so the question I have then for you guys is, in the PT world, to my understanding, mm -hmm. they're not arguing so much about what exact device should I use? Because there's a plethora of devices you can use, right? Mm -hmm. Why do you think we're at a place where we're trying to figure out which as opposed to understanding how they function differently and deciding how to apply it? I'm wondering when that question is going to happen. I think that yeah. we have to become more sophisticated in our understanding of the modality. For example, physical therapists will have one unit, but it will have Russian stem, it will right. have MAFC, it will have all kinds of things. And they understand the, the implications for each of those waveforms and for you know, high volt, low volt, mm -hmm. they understand what that's doing from a physiological standpoint mm -hmm. to their patients. Mm -hmm. And until we as a profession understand electrical stimulation, mm -hmm. I don't think that, that we can have a, an intelligent conversation about why or why we wouldn't use a specific kind or a specific placement or a specific, specific type until we understand it well enough to have that conversation. So what do we need to do to understand it? What is 2018 supposed to be like if we could dream that the conversation turns into this as it relates to eastem in 2018 what would the conversation be or what would the questions be in my opinion instead of saying what should we use i think the foundation needs to start with let's have an eastem course and let's just learn about eastem let's just learn what it does what are the different waveforms what are the different types what are the parameters what are they doing? Mm -hmm. And let's start from there. So now we understand the concept. And now I can hear people say, well, I got that in the Vitalism course. I got that in the Ampcure course. Mm -hmm. I got that in the Guardian course. And you're shaking your head 
really emphatically and why is that so i of course i've been to all of the courses and it's been a number of years but they each talk about why theirs is the one ah got it but i just want a you know a pt to come in and give us a course they on, are pts that <laughs> doesn't have a, an interest in, in, sure. in a product sure and teach us about electrical stimulation got it See, I'm way more cynical, Ed. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think we have to take a step further back. And I think that the thing with eSIM is understanding what you want to treat in the first place. <laughs> well, right? I mean, if we don't understand, first of all, what the impairment is in a swallow that we want to treat, then, well, where do we go from there? Right? I mean, that's, that's basic. Regardless of what the dosage is, what the placement is, and all of these details, it's understanding when you use eSIM in a certain way, what type of impairment can you target? What, how will it challenge the system? What can you do with it to pair it with what the patient's impairment is? And I don't think we're on that level yet. I would agree. But, but if we understood how to use it more, maybe we could do studies that were more clear and more defined and concise rather than the, this kind of shotgun approach that we're taking, doing studies, putting Eastam on and not really knowing what, what we're trying to do or what we're looking for. I, I think a both and could happen here. I think we could have a course on the foundation or the basis of electrical stimulation that is not tied to a manufacturer. Just And you would obviously include all the possible things that are on the market. But then my only issue is clinicians need to be willing to step away from the device if studies show it doesn't work for a particular impairment. Mm -hmm. And I'm worried that it's an everything. It's like a throw it out of the wall and see what sticks thing. Yeah. Like I don't care if studies show it has no impact on the velum. This guy's got nasal regurgitation and we're just gonna see what happens. Right. Except that they can't see what happens because they don't have any imaging. You guys, we have to move on to a new topic. Yeah. So the next topic that we have on our list is thermal tactile slash sensory stimulation. Now, obviously, thermal tactile is sensory stimulation, but I think the slash is necessary. Anybody want to say why, or is it just in my head? Yeah, no, I think that it is necessary because I think we've moved beyond just hot and cold stimulation. It's sour boluses. It's um, any carbonation. It's anything that heightens the sensory system I think has kind of gets lumped in with thermal tactile stimulation or at least the principles of it and how it originated. So what's what's the what's the in 2017 what was the what was the issue? I mean, I know there were a lot of fights on Facebook about it. Well, you know, I mean, I think everyone is looking for something to to treat what is referenced as a swallow delay. Mm, yeah. And so we, we initially thought that thermal tactile stimulation with our little laryngeal mirrors was the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember being new to the field of swallowing and my lab coat was filled with laryngeal mirrors and that's what I did with everyone. I mean, literally everyone, got, you know, I poked them in the, <laughs> with um, a laryngeal mirror because we were told that was the solution to our problem. Mm. And I think that was before we you know, really understood swallowing and understood the, really the, how complex it is. Mm -hmm. You know, we were still trying to give simple answers because right. we didn't understand the complexity. So 
um, until you introduced to me kind of the foundation of where the whole concept came from, mm-hmm. I, I had no idea kind of, and now I almost call it lunacy, mm-hmm. um, where where this idea even came from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what did I say, Ed? Because I don't remember at all. No, it was the paper. <laughs> was, so we were having this discussion and, um, and you said, have you read this paper? Mm. And so I pulled up the paper that was the foundation. And so, Oh, you're talking about the um, Penfield? Yes. So, ah, 1908? 1908, ah, yeah, University yes. of Wisconsin. Yes. Um, so I can explain that so our listeners know what's talking about. So there is a paper that I posted. It was and it was a, um, it's on Facebook. If anybody's interested, I can find it on the, um, I can post it on the Down the Hatch Facebook page and the Twitter page. But it's a very old paper where they found these zones in the oral pharyngeal region and they poked around with different amounts of pressure to see which elicited a swallow. Um, actually, now I think about it, I have a MedBridge course and I talk about this as it relates to swallowing trigger as one of the many studies that have investigated this. They poked from anywhere from the deep pharynx all the way to like the soft palate, the fascial arches. And they found that the fascial arches tended to be the spot where you got a more reliable swallow response. Like I think maybe 50% of the participants, healthy people, um, got it with a lighter pressure. And there's some places even with deep pressure, you didn't get very reliable responses. So based on that, a lot of people said, so the fascial arches trigger a swallow. So do you see the leap there? Just because in 50% of the people, it tended to be something that triggered it, it doesn't mean that it starts to swallow. That's like saying 50% of people cut onions have tears, so tears cause crying. It's not the same thing, right? Analogy ding. (laughs) And the funny part of it is the thing that I find so funny was what they were trying to do was find out. So they were anesthetizing pharynxes with cocaine to try to fill up the lungs with barium so they could do lung studies and the patients were having adverse reactions to the amount of cocaine. Mm-hmm. So they were Shocking. trying to, yeah. So they were, yeah. I, know. I don't know why it'd be adverse, I'm just saying. <laughs> but they were trying to localize where they put the cocaine. And that's mm-hmm. why they were doing this study yeah. to figure out where the trigger was. So they could so interesting. Look, because you know, if you put it somewhere, it doesn't move anywhere else. Right. Uh, but and this is 1908. Eight. Back, right. back when Coca-Cola had cocaine in it. Right. Over a hundred years ago. Yeah. Yes. So, so they weren't even doing it for the purpose that, you know, the leap forward when we started using it and started implementing it into our therapy regimens, they, the whole purpose of why they were doing it was different. And then there were no controls. So they weren't looking at saliva flow. When I go to the dentist, I want to swallow every 20 seconds. Yeah. When someone puts something in my mouth, I want to swallow. Right. And, and they didn't control any of those right. things. And right. so we really don't know... We can appreciate where it originated from, from a theory standpoint, right? Sure. I mean, let's, would you guys agree with me that delayed swallow initiation is one of the most common swallowing impairments that exist, especially in a neuro... Wait, truly exist or is diagnosed? Because the extent to which something is diagnosed and that it's actually impairment are not... I would say actual impairment. Okay. I would say it's in I the don't know. top I don't know three. Either. I don't know. I really don't know. And here's why. Up until seeing these things on floor and seeing... I know, I always say this, but so many normal people Mm -hmm. initiate at the piriform without any aspiration. And then even patients who have a stroke, the delay is so long and they just manage to not aspirate. I'm just worried that delay does not equal equal aspiration, right? Right. Well, before we get sidetracked, let me just say that when someone has a delayed swallow initiation, nobody's saying... 
Oh, guys, come here. Come look at this. Uh, he, this guy has a delay. We don't see this very often. That's true. It's well, a that's, common no, it's, it's, not, it's not nasal regurgitation. But I would agree it's overdiagnosed. I forget yeah. I'm talking to scientists sometimes. Right. I okay. try to make a top 10 list. It's yeah. like, whoa, 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 we can't yeah. commit to this. <laughs> but when we say that the bolus enters the pharynx volitionally and just sits there. Right. And, of course. And, and it's, it's not about where it triggers, it's a difficult but it's just treatment. sitting there, mm -hmm. not moving. It's a difficult impairment to address. And the theory behind where tactile stimulation started makes sense. Yes. The theory behind it. Wait, wait, wait. So two things I want to say. One thing is that I love the theory. I want to jump on that. But do you guys recall in the Logan, I believe it's 1998 copy of her text, it's the most recent one, she indicates in the, I think it's chapter one about normal swallowing. She talks about all the events, she talks about trigger. And she says in the, I think it was the 83 version, which was the original version, that she's changing it and in the 83 version it says a swallow should trigger at the at the um fossil arches but in the updated version she says that's actually incorrect we know that a swallow can be triggered later my only worry is that the damage was kind of done in terms of people being very objective and saying boom i already have it in my head and if you're already risk averse conservative group that kind of influence, um, and the thing is, I love the fact that she updated and said, hey, look, we're learning, we're changing. I'm just worried that people weren't flexible enough to go with her, mm -hmm. right? No, Don't we're not. With that? Right? I mean, that's that's a given. We're not flexible enough. Once we learn something, that's yeah. the way we fit Well, even is. the papers that showed, you know, Bonnie Martin-Harris, um, her paper that showed that normal people initiate a swallow in the pure forms, that paper was published over 10 years ago. But there's one before that, in 2005, in 2005 um, Ruth Martin is one of the authors on it, and yes. she shows, shows the very same, same thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. So regarding the theory, for those of you guys who were like, get to the theory already. Um, so the point is that we know that there are studies that show that if you diminish oral sensation, be it studies in healthy people with top, topical anesthesia or having people do multiple dry swallows, you get a reduced, diminished, or absent swallow response. And the reverse is true. If you have a much bigger bolus, you tend to get longer durations of things. Things tend to more pressure, etc. So the argument is that the oral cavity takes the sensation, says, hey, brainstem, this is what we're working it with. Please plan an appropriate swallow response. And people assume that if you manipulate the bolus and it's bigger or more, more or thicker, the planning happens at the brainstem to make that change, and the reverse is true. So the theory makes sense that heightening the bolus should change the response. But the issue is the bolus is often not thought of as therapy. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. The problem is people say, well, I'm just going to take a mirror and stroke something, a non-swallow sensory um, innervation or input of some sort is going to heighten it. Now, we're not talking about making a room brighter when you're going to like, you know, do uh, throw a dart in it versus super dim. Thank you. <laughs> but it's still, the argument is, should we be thinking about the bolus as therapy? Absolutely. If swallowing is the best treatment for swallowing, why aren't we thinking of the bolus yeah. itself as therapy? I think the more I, you know, the older I get and the more patients I see, the, the more evaluations I do and treatment I do, the more I just believe that any time that we do therapy, the more related to swallowing that it is and as natural as possible is better. Absolutely. One of the analogies I use when I teach, well, I have a section in the course that I teach called the bolus as a therapeutic tool. Oh, cool. And I say, we don't have that fancy weight rack that sits in the middle of the gym, like the PTs and OTs do with all the nice little weights on it. All we have is food. Yeah. yeah. And so try to find 
the food that makes your patient swallow the way you want them to swallow mm-hmm. so that they can have a nice, good foundation yeah. mm-hmm. and then build on that and yeah. make, build complexity systematically, looking at what the bolus is doing to the patient. Yeah. When you have, when you see patients that are on that. a lot of um, therapy regimens that are non-swallow task related, all I can picture, and I picture this every time, is a patient going through physical therapy, sitting in a wheelchair for six weeks, just doing leg presses and bicep curls for six weeks with the physical therapist saying, in six weeks from now, we'll try walking. But until then, (laughs) we're going to do this as much as possible. You know, even if they have a twenty, pros- even if they have a prosthetic device, absolutely, they're up. Like yeah. you know, if they don't have anything below the knees, they're up. Yeah. Right. As soon as their Sir, stuff gets in, you're too high risk of falling. So I, we want to do six weeks of treatment before we even try getting up and walking. So it's, here's the other thing: it sounds people, bogus, pe- but that's what we do. This is the thing that that drives me bonkers: is that people will argue, well, it's different because you can see a fall and you can put them in a harness, right? But these are the same people who diagnosed dysphagia at the bedside and never saw the swallow. So since when were you so worried about <laughs> about not seeing the swallow? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, it's like, I don't even yeah. understand. So let's get back on track for a second. Okay. Thermotactile yeah. sim, I have a question for you guys. Oh, okay. Is there a place for it in any realm? Would you- yes. There's a place for everything in any realm. We just don't know the realm yet. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, we just don't know how to use it yet. And, and I'm not discouraging anyone from using a cold rental mirror, right? I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine unless you lose it down the down the pharynx by accident. Mm-hmm. Generally, you might be wasting someone's time, but it's not like we know that you know ten weeks of your handout with cut and gut and efferfuls and mesophiles are necessarily doing anything more either. Mm-hmm. Until we have objective, realistic data, we actually don't know about the things that we somehow think are actually better. Yeah. My question is, what are we measuring when we use it? Well, that's my point. Yeah. With any of them, what are we measuring? Yeah. Right. We don't oh, actually that's true. know. I think that's a good time to move on to, and I did say the M word, Masako. <laughs> oh, oh, do we really want to go here? I think we do. I think okay. we need to go here because I think the Masako and thermal tactile stimulation, I feel like if you put TTS or Masako, everyone, I think people actually had search terms set up to get alarms on their phone <laughs> so they can follow or whatever and be like, oh my God, it's like a train wreck about to happen if anyone asks any question about the two. And you'd see people pile on and say, Masako doesn't have any evidence. Thermal tactile doesn't have any evidence. So what do you guys think about that? Yeah, so you so you know everyone has to know that we don't always agree on this one. Yep. This is one that, <laughs> that we that we had take different stances on. I don't think it meets exercise principles. What are exercise principles? So the the principle of overload, the principle of engaging the muscles that that you want to engage to to strengthen or to get the activity. I think it's more like constraint reduced therapy, but we're constraint induced induced. Yes. yes I'm sorry. Okay. Con, constraint induced therapy. And I, you know, my concern is that we may be decreasing the range of motion of the base of tongue. And we know that the rain, that is such an important part of driving the bolus through the pharynx. And until we know more, which would have been nice to know more about all these things we're talking sure. about, mm-hmm. but I, I, I just am concerned based on the information that we have that we could be doing harm to our patients by using this. Now, when we talk about the Masako, Ed, and you said that we Do you want to explain what it is in case people don't know? So basically the Masako, another word for it is tongue hold. So if you're looking on, you're someone who's looking at PubMed and you don't find a lot for Masako, tongue hold is another thing. The point is you extend your tongue beyond your teeth. The degree to which you do it is not necessarily standardized. 
Um, a clinician might hold the front of the tongue with gauze, but the point is you swallow with your tongue tethered and it makes it harder for your tongue to move backward for a posterior lingual propulsion. The argument has been that that forces the, let's say middle posterior pharyngeal area to bulge forward in an attempt to compensate for the tongue's inability to move back to meet the pharynx. So people generally say that the masako slash tongue hold is a maneuver that is meant for the posterior pharyngeal wall, although I often see people say it's for base of tongue. But the overall goal would be to increase the contact between the tongue between the two. and the posterior pharyngeal wall. And the extent to which one versus the other is doing the job is not 100% clear. Is that fair to say? That's fair. That's fair. Okay. And, and my concern is, so is, although the pharyngeal wall does move forward some in a, in a normal healthy swallow, which I don't have apparently, um, <laughs> that is moving it too far forward impeding the velocity of the bolus movement and therefore and creating a new problem. But what if you have impaired pharyngeal constriction, movement of the posterior pharyngeal wall, and you just want to get it back to baseline? Good question. So, you know, Dr. Logeman told us that base of tongue to pharyngeal wall contact, that movement mm -hmm. was more important than the actual pharyngeal constriction and driving the bolus mm -hmm. through the pharynx. But what if you want to target pharyngeal constriction to aid in epiglottic inversion? You're actually not worried about the that. tongue. I was just going to say the that. The epiglottis can get to horizontal position. The tongue is doing its job saying, hey, I got it to horizontal position, and now we need the posterior pharyngeal wall to complete epiglottic inversion, to engulf the epiglottis, but that's impaired. And we're like, we just really want to get a post the posterior pharyngeal wall mechanism. Hmm. Does it do that? Well, we don't know what it does in general. So the only issue that I have, I really like your point about constraint-induced therapy. If you guys aren't familiar with that, in OT, they often have a situation where if you've had a person who's had a stroke and one arm is has paresis, the other arm is well is doing well. What people want to do is they want to use a strong arm. So you tie back the strong arm, strong arm to force the bad arm to work. So my issue with the idea of constraint-induced therapy is that we're assuming that people have definitively separated out one versus the other and said the pharynx is fine, but the tongue isn't working, or the reverse. Right. The tongue is fine, the pharynx is working. So the tongue can afford a little bit of detriment here to force the pharynx to work. So I think if someone goes in, and with everything we're going to talk about, this is the bottom line for me. If you understand swallowing, if you understand normal swallowing, and then you can layer on the impairment on top of that, and you know what your, the therapies are supposed to do, you can figure out almost anything and have a sound physiologic rationale for this. Because mm -hmm. I can see going in, seeing a patient, they don't, they have adequate base of tongue, posterior pharynx is an issue, and I decide that based on two things. One, range of motion is an issue. They're still getting the epiglottis to horizontal, suggesting good base of tongue, but there is some residue in the back of the tongue and the pharynx really doesn't move very much to meet. And as a result, the epiglottis then doesn't complete its position all the way down to invert. So I'd say, okay, base of tongue looks good, pharynx doesn't look so good. The, I can tether the base of tongue a little bit so that it can still work, but maybe this will force the, the pharynx to move forward. It's almost like a induced targeted effortful. I'm assuming that error-based learning will trigger and they'll say there's an effort I need, to, there's an error I need to overcome here 
and I'll compensate with using the surrounding muscles. And by the way, we always say posterior pharyngeal wall, but the wall, the pharynx is C-shaped, so it's all the, the lateral pharyngeal walls mm -hmm. as well that we can't really see very well. I think that that's a sound physiologic rationale that if somebody put that, give it X, Y, Z, I tested this, and it looked like this, I would go, boom. I wouldn't say, but there's no group data on that. It doesn't matter. You're N of one. You're N of one right now. Mm -hmm. Did well. But you wouldn't just do that in therapy. You would do it under imaging. Oh, I'm see. assuming this is all imaging right. first. And then you might continue with therapy. You know the other thing about the Masako? You can dose tongue. You can measure how much it out is out, and you can even increase that over time to say, they make a little harder. Instead of like a quarter inch, we're gonna do it. You know what I'm saying? It's, mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be all or none. I think but we can all agree that it's not a base of tongue exercise. No, we can't all agree we that can't. because we don't know oh, yet. She nope. never agrees. Nope, here's the thing. <laughs> here's my issue with that. My only issue with that is that we have situations where resistance training is possible, right? We don't know if styloglossus and anterior genioglossus work harder over weeks of continued regular resistance, such that when you take that resistance away, is is there better range of movement? We until there's a study showing it's not for the tongue, I can't say that the tongue isn't doing anything. We're we're directly interacting with the tongue. Yeah. I have two things to say about that. One yeah. is, and I think maybe. Um, to kind of get to your point a little bit is if a clinician says to me, well, I am absolutely targeting the base of tongue with a Masako, I'm going to be skeptical of that. I'm going to say, hold the phone for a second. Under what? <laughs> under what? You mean like they did it once in fluoro? No, just say, oh. just definitively, like, yes, it targets the base of the tongue. You would ask why they think that. Yes. I agree with you. Second thing is I have an issue where... With the Masako, I see people having their patients stick their tongue out so far yeah. that they can't even initiate a swallow. Yeah. That they're yeah. just doing, nobody can see me, but it's so far. I mean, we could do it right now. Stick your tongue out as far as you can. It's really and there tough. is a point where you're just like, you're but not even, doing anything. Even healthy people can do We've tested that in our lab among us. And we're like, yeah. okay, this is too far. This whole three inch thing, like my yeah. tongue is not that long. <laughs> I, do, I do think there's a sweet spot where you're providing resistance, but you're not impeding the action itself where you're just like and that's tough oh, to determine right it is especially in a patient because you're trying to get them to give you feedback mm -hmm. and they're telling you you're swallowing maybe you're palpating there's a lot of subjective things that are happening all at once that it's again another thing that needs to be confirmed in fluoro and i think that a simple thing that could be done is if someone did um, EMG, needle EMG, yep. styloglossus, absolutely, uh, genioglossus, and mm -hmm. you know, and did it, and to see. I mean, that doesn't seem like a very complicated task. It's not a complicated task. It's just a matter of con um, controlling the amount of resistance and and the fact that the tongue is stuck out the same amount. But anyway, yeah. since we've designed a study, we'll come back a year in review next year and see if someone's <laughs> done it right. Yeah. So the next topic is a little off. It's not a specific therapy. But it's Asha versus us. <laughs> Everyone's face palming right now. Well, it's 2018, and we all are in either um, just turned in our Asha dues or we're late. And <laughs> raise your hand if you pay your dues on December. Raise your 31st. hand if you're looking for the Asha Plan B pill right now. Because you're like, wait to hell. <laughs> But oh, wait, analogy always, ding. Yeah. It's always this time of year where um, 
you get the flood of people that are complaining yep. about having to pay their ASHA dues. You know and what? It's- you are so right. If we did a search, a real word search, mm-hmm. it would be somewhere between November and January. You'd see this spike in... Yeah. Like, I'm not going to say that. You actually can, I think, in Google Analytics. You can yes. look at trends over yes. time. There would be so many, I can't stand Asha, what are they doing for yes. us posts. And then May, everyone's better vision here, you baby doll. Best yeah. job ever. <laughs> best job, we got best job. That's right, top 50 yeah. jobs, not saying, not saying. And then, like, come November, you're like, shit. Asha. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, let's take out the financial piece. Because, I mean... I don't, we can't predict and argue about people's, what they can afford, what they can't afford. Is it high? Is it low? The argument that often people see saying is, look, I'm a professional. Professional dues aren't foreign to me. But is ASHA, quote unquote, doing anything for us? Now, when I say us, I want to talk about speech pathologists who do swallowing. Because often the argument on these swallowing groups is about things like productivity. It's about advocacy. It's about should we use ESTEM? It's about getting us instrumentals. What do you guys think about Asha's role on those specific things or anything that you can think of that you've seen a lot? So when I think of Asha, and this is kind of a very trite analogy, I think of a church Hmm. because a church isn't a person doing something. Mm -hmm. A church is a group of people doing something something together. Mm -hmm. And Asha is a member-driven organization. Mm -hmm. Asha is not a building in Rockville, Maryland. Mm -hmm. We are all together together. Asha. And so what Asha should be doing, and that would be us, Mm -hmm. is advocating for the right things in our field and for the right things for our patients. And when we all do that collectively, the power of that is, or the sum of that is so much greater than if, you know, the 50 people who work in that building in Rockville send out an email that says productivity shouldn't exceed 80%. Right. But here's the thing. There's asking ASHA to set a rule and then there's enforcing. ASHA does not have the ability to enforce any rule in SNF 87 in Colorado. Yeah. You know there is saying? no um, ASHA police if force. ASHA, if ASHA, exactly. If ASHA sets a rule and it's not enforced, it's going to look even stupider, right? Because it's like, why did you put out this little position paper on it and you can't make my boss give me floral? So before we start saying, why doesn't ASHA do something about these people making us have productivity or these people who are doing things to us? Mm -hmm. How about let's look at something like, here are the competencies that should be displayed by Mm -hmm. a clinician before they treat swallowing. Enforcement. And how many... the same enforcement problem. And how many of us are looking at that competency checklist Mm -hmm. and actually saying, oh, I don't have these competencies. Oh, Ed, are you saying, are you saying that we have responsibility? Because I feel like you almost said that, and I feel like you're going to get slammed. You're going to get all, so many PMs, and people are like, I I mean, that's a great point. I love that. So there are two things that come to mind. One is, I just want to clarify. I want you guys to hear what he said. He said, Asha has competencies about what someone dealing with swallowing should be able to do. Can you do them? That's the first question. Look it up. It's free. Can you do them? But they're not going to come to your facility it, exactly. As a, as a Let's not blame exactly. Say, Let's not blame Asha for not getting floral if you don't know how the UES opens. Right. And then you're gonna blame your school and say, "Well, they didn't tell me." Well, at what point do you say, "Okay, my my parents never taught me about financial responsibility, and I have this credit card debt, but who went and charged up the credit cards?" This is not a personal story. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> um, so the other thing is, um, Asha. If you think of the ASHA as a police, you still have to lock your doors. 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? You can't be like, Asha, these people robbed me. It's like, well, why don't you lock your doors? Well, yeah. you're Asha. So I think it's a both and. I don't think it's just Asha. I don't think it's just us. I think it's a, supposed to be a combination, just yeah. like the church, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like you can't be blaming the deacons because... Yeah, and you can't have your cake and eat it too. So you can't say, we need more regulation, we need more oversight, we need a ASHA police force. But then when they come and say, all right, well, you are a licensed ASHA, you know, you have your C's. Tell me about norms for a three-year-old that <laughs> stutters. And you're like, uh, no, I don't. I don't deal with that. Well, then I you don't can't practice do anymore. Then you can't practice anymore. And it's like, I want, I have autonomy. I choose to practice with adults only. I do not, right. you know, so we so want they autonomy. Don't, exactly. You can't have both. They're the government. It's, you know what? It's like the people who say, I don't want the government in my bedroom, but they kind of do want them in everybody else's bedroom. And yeah. you're like, can you get up in their bedroom? Cause I don't know about what they're doing, but yeah. stay out of mine. Yeah. Right. And, and that's exactly how I feel about it. We, mm-hmm. we want to manipulate what they do. The way we personally, yes. like it's our personal organization. Exactly. And let's not forget that what would we be without ASHA? That's let's true. think about that for yeah. a second, yeah. right? Because they are a regulatory body where we have a license and we have a license because we have a professional organization like ASHA. Without ASHA, people can treat, diagnose, do whatever they want. There's no standard for, and we can argue about whether the standards are clear cut, whether they're right, whether they need to be more rigorous, whether whatever. But without ASHA, we don't have that. And I bet you, I I always hear people saying, well, in PT, well, in OT, you know, the thing is we're not PT or OT. We argue on one hand about it's not fair. Don't compare us to PT and OT when it comes to productivity. But then when it comes to what their, you know, association does, you're like, well, it's not fair because AOTA or whatever it's called. AOTA. AOTA AOTA Mm -hmm. does this, that, and the other. Anyway. Shall we move to the next one? One, two, three, four. Woohoo! We are on cyberbullying, guys. <sighs> <laughs> Who's going to talk? Hey, first? how about let's go to the next one? I'm just fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think what is cyberbullying? It's I, whatever people feel like it is, isn't it? At the moment, yes, it is. Yeah. If someone says something that I don't agree with, then they're bullying me. Right. I mean, that's where we are. Right. That, again, it's like we just talked about Esha. It's my personal definition. Mm-hmm. If, if, you, if I say, what eSTEM device should I go to the class? And you chime in and say, well, none of them really have the evidence that we need to tell you that the answer to this question. And then I get mad at you because you said something that wasn't what I wanted you to say. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I feel like cyberbullying is defined today. So may I suggest that cyberbullying is when you take your opinion out in public for validation and you don't get it? There you go. It's gray. <laughs> I think I think the true definition of cyberbullying is an intent to do harm. Right, and I think that that needs to be clearly defined, mm-hmm. um, and we need to remind ourselves that we work in a professional environment where discourse, debate, conversation, tough conversations are critical in order for our field and practice to evolve. So, if everybody is working in their own silo and seeing patients, and there's no communication, there's no questioning then I think that that's very detrimental to our field. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think we all have a very different definition as to where that discord, where that conversation, where that line is between well, you're being mean to me now. But That's true. Do you ever see anyone on social media, you know, say, well, you're just an idiot for thinking that or that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Right. No, you don't it's rare. That. It's rare. Right. But do people interpret it that way? Yeah. That's a different story. Right. But I mean, heaven knows if, if the audience was with us today, how many times did we start getting, you know, someone would say something and the other two would start saying, no, this or no, that or no, you know, and yeah. no one walked away saying, well, I don't like you anymore. That was mean, or you treated me wrong, or that was mansplaining, or whatever. <laughs> mansplaining. I that's got right. accused of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, no. It was just it, it's it's an intelligent conversation, a dialogue between people. We don't have to come to an agreement. We don't right. have to 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 think the same way. But if you put your idea out there, and then I put my idea out there, they're parallel. Mm -hmm. They're not. Yeah. They're not. But sometimes they do intersect and crash, right? Yes. So I've seen that happen where people say, I know I can tell if I heard aspiration. Oh, I was going to say something that would call somebody out, so I won't say that. Uh, but uh, it'd be very specific and everybody would know. But the point is that um, it would be like, you know, I know I can hear if the bolus was stuck in the vollecula. I could hear it dwelling there saying, get me out, get me out. I mean, when you see those kinds of things, you say, no, you, you can't. And that's when I start to say, guys, you know, there's a point here where we have a responsibility where to what extent are we worried about people's feelings more so than the patients? Too much. Right? Way too much. Right? It's yeah. just like, wow. I mean, sometimes the whistleblowing is actually what needs to happen. I mean, it could be that bad when you see some things like, hey, first time in a NICU, got some babies with, you know, airway issues, think I should know anything? Um, walk out of there, sweetie. Please don't kill any. And when you see those things, people are like, go with your gut. Trust your gut. I don't want you trusting your gut on my baby. Mm -hmm. Trust yeah. it on your baby. That's how I feel as somebody who had a baby in, you know, in NICU mm -hmm. for a short time, but still. Yeah. If I knew that someone was walking in with nothing but their gut, I'd be like, dude, like, I need you to have a little bit more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we want to be right more than we want to learn. Yeah. That's a good point. We want to be validated, validated. more yeah. than we want to be right even, mm -hmm. right? But see, that's why I like coming like here because when you have people who will question everything that you say, that's how you learn. Even yeah. to the extent where you can't say anything, right? Ed? Sometimes. <laughs> you, you know, You're like, hello, no, I, not I hello. I think we can talk very directly about this because I, you know, I think most of our listeners are um, involved in Facebook groups, discussion forums where this is very, very prevalent. And um, I think that... It's, it's something where we, this is an area that can be directly, you know, this is a, well, the research, is, research isn't out there. This is a, we can, we can, we can address this right now and say, you have to take your personal sensitivities out of, you know, opinions. And, you know, when you're asking for advice, you have to be vulnerable and be okay yeah. with it and be comfortable with it. And not let your personal feelings get in the way of an opportunity to learn. Well, I say that to my kids every time we go to the pediatrician. I'm like, I can't save you from chicken pox if you can't get over the initial pain of the needle. Right. What the pain initially 
is worth the long-term gain. So at first, the more you start to hear people disagree with you and you realize, wow, I have so much to learn, at first it can be bad. And after a while, you start to gain so much that you're, it's not even painful. You start to seek it out. Yeah. But that initial pain does hurt when you realize, wow, I'm so behind. But you're never going to grow if you always avoid that. Yeah. I think uh, I, I want to just touch, touch on this topic a, a tiny bit longer, but um, I think one of the most unfortunate things I see is people really struggling with admitting that they don't know something. It is okay. I have so much respect mm -hmm. for people on Facebook groups that maybe are really experienced, have been practicing for a long time and are able to say, I did not know that. Thank you. I learned something from this. Or, hey guys, you know what? I really don't know what to do in this situation. Mm -hmm. And are able to take the opinions and advice from other people and, and just take that, take that in. So this is part of the issue. So I just said something about people who feel like they can hear the vollecula, hear food in the vollecula, right? And I made a joke about it. Do you think anyone's going to now post about feeling like they can hear where their bolus is? Yeah. No. So, I mean, like, maybe we're contributing to it by even, yeah. like, saying these things. I don't know. But I, don't, I, I almost don't know how to address things without bringing them up. Yeah. And it's also, <laughs> it's like, we don't, we don't have good discussions if people don't put themselves out there, too, right? That's true. You know, if I post a question about, hey, what would you guys do? You had a patient that had this impairment. What would you treat? And it's crickets, people that like, oh, I don't want to say, I don't know, I don't want to like have a definitive put myself out there because I might get criticized. Mm -hmm. It, we have to not do that. Yeah. And it's, I know it's easy for, for some people to say, it's easy for me to say when you're somebody that is just like, hey, I'm used to getting criticism, I'm used to getting feedback, you know, it's, it's easy to say that, but... I think what you're saying is you're a battered wife and I'm your husband, <laughs> as, your, as your doctoral advisor, and she's, this is a call for help, people. She wants to be you, she wants to be safe like you. So, so that just made me think of something uh, that triggered a thought, Yeah. and that there are those therapists who operate in a community, mm -hmm. and there are those therapists who operate... Oh, and isolation. a solo in isolation. Yeah. And, and we have so many people in our profession who do operate in isolation. Yes. Now, just to be clear, when you say operate in a community, I don't want people to think it means that you can't be the only SLP. Because I know people who, who have a group of SLPs and they all disagree and don't correct each other and don't talk. Right. But a community can be a trusted group of people you like to talk to. It could be your Facebook community. Some people say, I love posting on Facebook. People set me straight. I'll take this and I'll leave that. And in their mind, that's mm -hmm. a community. And there are other people who have an actual physical community and they don't actually use that because right. they yeah. don't want to be exposed among, really among the, the lady next to them in the cubicle. Right. It's a bunch yeah. of people acting in isolation. Exactly. <laughs> side by Silos. Side. Silos lined up together with the same degree. Yeah. The, and I want to... When we operate in isolation, I fear that we start trying to be right. You know what? I'm just going to say that we've already segued to the next one, which is high emotion, low log logic. That's the next topic. So let me just ring because it's, it's going yep. along with your saying. An expert has never arrived. Yes. And I want to say something really specific about this. Go because, And I'm going to make a bold statement and say, I think this is the most important thing I've ever said in a podcast. Because oh. this is a big take-home message. All right, quiet. This quiet. is a big... This was a... This was the turning point in my career. And I say this to a lot of therapists out there that are the advice givers, that just love, love mentoring, that love giving advice, that have a lot of experience and have a lot of really good things to say. I'm not saying the advice is bad, but I'm saying they're just people that love to mentor. Mm -hmm. 
And I want to reflect on my own experience. When I started my PhD, I learned a lot. I started to get asked to review, to be a reviewer for manuscripts. And I learned a lot from critiquing other people's work, from reading what they wrote and saying, oh, you should do this differently. You should, you know, fix this and, and giving feedback and giving advice. And I learned a lot about swallowing that way. But I will say that's 5%. And where I really, really learned was putting my own stuff out there and being open to criticism and having people critique my work and being vulnerable and say, this is what I believe. This is um, my theory. This is, you know, my results. And sometimes it was taken with, yeah, I agree with that. That sounds really great. But a lot of times it was getting bashed, not in a way that was mean. It wasn't bullying. It was, these are the ways that you can refine what you're already doing to make it better. Mm -hmm. And that is where I think, especially therapists that have been practicing for a long time can really, really evolve as putting yourself out there. And the, if you have high emotion and low logic or low reasoning, you will never get there. Yes. And there's, and you will respond, you will make things the meaning that they that the person ever meant. Yep. Like if someone says, "What? I'm curious why you chose that treatment. Oh, here she goes, trying to tell me. It's like, no, 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 no. She was curious. Mm -hmm. Now maybe she's curious because she's expecting you to say the wrong answer so she can correct you. But is that a problem? Don't you want to know, don't you want to have a conversation about what other people think? Mm -hmm. You don't have to accept it. Yeah. Oh, and let's I, talk. Yeah. I, it, the more I learn, the less I know. Yes. And I think that that's really important. Ed, when you said yesterday an expert has never arrived, that mm -hmm. just really hit me because the more I learn and the more I, quote, become an expert, mm -hmm. the less I feel like an expert and the mm -hmm. more questions I have. But that's what it's supposed to be like. Exactly. So, but, so that goes back to the point of when people say, know what you know and know what you don't know. Um, and some people say, well, how am I supposed to know what I don't know? Um, I think a lot of people know what they don't know. Let's be real in our field. Yeah. We're not talking about something that hasn't been discovered yet. We're talking about the basics of how the swallow works. I still have to harp on this. If you don't know how a swallow works, you know you don't know that. Mm -hmm. Right? All the times where people don't want to raise their hand when we start talking about basic physiologic things or when someone says, hey, what's the physiologic rationale for using it in that situation? And it's just like, well, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to be wrong. Mm -hmm. Then you know what you don't know. Yeah. But do you try to fulfill the, fill those gaps yes. actively? That's where the responsibility comes in. Yeah. And speaking of year in review, it is 2018, people. That's the right. resources are there. Yes. It's not... It is a lame ass excuse mm -hmm. to just keep hiding away from being asked the questions right find the information it's all there well and when we there... talk about anatomy it's a finite amount of information <laughs> yeah yeah and it ha hasn't There's changed no, no one's getting anymore. new muscles <laughs> it's not a software update we're like oh shoot where that button come yeah. from no 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 it's time's hardware up. Yeah. time's up exactly i know <laughs> me too y'all me too for real i mean honestly i i really feel like there are people who are acting, and I'm just going to put my parents out there because they're on vacation and they don't listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> but I found, I found this book when I was cleaning up about everything you'd ever need to know about using the computer. It has like, the spine was so crisp, like they never cracked that book, right? And to this day, they have computer phobia 
but mm-hmm. they don't want to really say it that they they don't know how to respond to a text or yeah. I, I didn't sh- pick up the kids because I, I you know, they're not going to put themselves out there. But I get it for them. They're not tr- they're not Mark you know Zuckerberg over here not knowing how to use a phone. Like that is devastating. You're like, wait, you, what you mean? Facebook <laughs> creator doesn't know how to use a phone. Right. They're my parents, mm-hmm. right? They're seventy something. But when you go and you treat a larynx and you have no clue how it moves about the neck, mm-hmm. then I have a problem. Yeah. But you have been able to get by. But you have been billing hundreds of thousands of dollars for this. Yeah. And, and impacting people's lives. And you, yes. your anatomy knowledge can't be like, you know, the bear chasing after you. I don't have to be the best in line, the first person running away. I just have to be not the last one. You can't just be the second to last in this yeah. run away from the bear situation. You know right, I know these three muscles. That's right. So I know that trigeminal is a cranial nerve. Uh, now, say yeah. something. Like, that's not <laughs> we, enough. We don't know what's in the future of our, present, uh, of our profession and how standards are going to change and competencies and with a younger generation coming through the, you know, through the educational system, how the educational system might change. I would say if you feel uncomfortable in areas and swallowing, now is the time yeah. to... M- make yourself become competent right Right. i post so many tutorials yes all the time yeah those are free all right and this can i say this one one thing about the high risk or the high emotion low logic we're all turning into like meryl streep like at the oscars of like shut the damn music off i got the (laughs) thunder i know know. okay and it's like oh that's meryl we we all received a tremendous lesson in that today Mm -hmm. from a patient that came into the clinic who said my original therapist kept me from getting better because they were afraid I was going to aspirate. Direct quote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and we watched him. We watched him aspirate today, and mm-hmm. nobody gasped in the room. Mm-hmm. We all just actually we all got excited about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, but yes, our our emotions impeding our patients' ability to improve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, we're on more study sometimes. But we got excited about it because we knew where he was coming from, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, honestly. When we saw that 95% of the bolus initially was going in the airway, mm-hmm. and we said, hey, these are the things you aspirate on, these are the things you don't, you're a grown man, you're cognitively intact, your only problem is that you have swelling problems because this brainstem stroke, everything else is in order, this is what we saw. This is a person who decided, I am going to have full-on meals on his own, mm-hmm. comes back for several visits, only to find out that... Ooh, it's probably true that swallowing is the best treatment for yeah. swallowing because holy cow, he went from like yeah. aspirating on ninety five percent of stuff to I would say ten to fifteen. Right? Mind you, mind you, the year. Well, it's just the volume of that that potato. So. I was like, I'll, that was. Oh, amazing. I was thinking about the liquids. Sure, the liquids. It was like five percent. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Mind so, you, the year before he came to see us, and this is a man that travels from North Carolina to drive to, to our Florida to see us because the year before he came to visit us after he had a stroke therapist when they did his video would do one to two swallows mm-hmm. under fluoro and say oh oh my god you're yeah. spreading so much and we're instilled the fear of god in him to not eat you're gonna get him oh my gosh so what, so, what, so bad yeah so he was like like what do i do and right. out of desperation found us online through the nih clinicaltrials.gov yeah it's a research to study. say there's got to be something you know everyone's telling me there's no hope that i'll never swallow again i'll never do anything and was legitimately afraid to put anything in his mouth in fear that one aspiration but, but guys what to... happens when a dentist or a dental hygienist opens someone's mouth and it's like just jacked up teeth cavities mm-hmm. do they close it back and send them out and say you'll never <laughs> chew again yeah. no 
you know, okay, here we go. Let's move yeah. on to the next one. Well, we have, oh, we don't have a ton. We have cookbook therapy, which you address to some degree. And I that's, the, and no, that's the argument that people actually will, they actually get upset at you if you don't give them a protocol. So in CTDM, it's called critical thinking and dysphagia <laughs> management. We have had five national CTDMs and no matter what in an evaluation, we'll get somebody who says, would have appreciated more protocol-driven explanations. Yeah. Well, can I critically AKA, think my way to a protocol? Exactly. <laughs> can I critically think about step one through five? I mean, no, actually, it's and we so we have changed it. So we start the meeting saying, guys, I know that you've been spoon-fed in undergrad and master's for the most part, but this is problem-based learning. We're not going to tell you the answers. We're going to help. We're going to teach you how to fish and not just give you fish. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll never be flexible. Yeah. The, they're, they're Research will never tell you everything you need to know about that person in front of you. They're going to vary. Yeah. Just live in the gray. Embrace the gray. I know. So, yeah, I will say. So, I've sat through your course five times trying to get back on topic here. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. And it astounds me, yes, how people still crave a black and white answer. Even, you know, at. When you are finished speaking after two days, yeah. people will wait yeah. in line to speak yes. to you for you to give them a black and white answer. And yeah. it's like, if you've listened to this lady talk for two solid days, if you haven't learned anything, yeah. learn that and they she's want, like, not And it's like insider information. They're like, so. Can you slide me the, so, like, the worksheet? But like, come on. You know, I like at the end of the day, know. like, <laughs> Can I get the hookup? But like, let's talk about what, what professions really do live in black and white where it is technicians technicians exactly. people who don't who maybe and it's not they're not worse than us they're just different guys if you are a mechanic and it's a man-made item yeah. i i expect that it's going to be a little bit more clear about what the car's situation is yeah, right absolutely. they run a diagnostic and now it's all digitized and computerized mm -hmm. you can't there's no there aren't people working on their cars in their driveways anymore for a reason yeah right this is not the case. We're not going to do a body scan and be like, high weight is not doing this and larynx is not doing... You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's not going to happen. The anatomy and physiology, if it was that simple, the robotic surgeries that happen would actually be robots without yeah. humans at all. And if you're not comfortable in that, then maybe this isn't your this field. This is not your field. Like my, my fiance is um, a very black and white person and he would go nuts in our field because he he's one of those people that is a whiz with Excel because he says, what do you want to do? I have a formula for you. It's, it's very right, yeah. like, yeah. you want to do this? Type in this formula and it will do it every single time, 100% of the time. Systematicity, and he loves that. Systematicity works, yes. right? Yes. But, and my husband's similar, he's an architect, and there's a code book that's the size, yeah. of the, size of the yellow pages. Young people, look up yellow pages, you'll know what that means. Um, and that means it's a really thick book, yeah. right? And it ex describes the standards for everything, escalator speed, door size. I'm like, what do you guys actually do? Yeah. You just like organize code. Yeah, I'm saying like, is your whole degree in this book? Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, he does tax. He's an accountant. He does taxes too. And, and of course, in taxes, there is a hint of gray area and in, in, in areas. Loopholes. That's what we yeah, call them. But when he, when he gets to those gray areas, it's very uncomfortable in the house. Yeah. It's like, because well, he doesn't live there. Can you yeah. write this off? Can you da da da? And it's like, oh. And like, we should be the opposite. When we do get a slam dunk black and white, we should be like, woohoo. Okay, yeah. that's never going to happen again yes. for a while. But I don't want a job like that. I no, like I agree with you. The, the ability to critically think that no patient is the same, that it's not, well, if they have this impairment, I do this treatment every time. 
every time, yeah. Then why don't you we know? just have SLPAs It would just everywhere. be a flow chart. It would yeah. be like, you know when you're in oh, stats, can I, when you're can trying I to choose like what stats are you going to run, it's like, what's your Sorry. population? What's I'm going your... to say something as you say bold here. Ooh. I know this is gonna this is gonna start some trouble, but I feel like I need to say it. If you think that a table can explain what every maneuver and posture will do, or like a, a or any kind of like organized, if you have this problem, do that. If you have this problem, do that. You have not read the literature. Yeah, the literature does not support that. For everything that you will find, let's go with Mendelssohn. Right? Let's just go with metal. Really? With, with, which Ed Weiss can't do. Okay? Uh, no, don't say that. You're, well, it Alicia, took him a while. Alicia, up for me. Ed, I don't know. <laughs> I did a classic Mendelssohn. I didn't have a range of Oh, you're right. He, he can do a Mendelssohn. He can't do it. A... Only with visual feedback. True. True. Well, there were a lot of things I couldn't do. That's true. <laughs> I did the whole bolus if you guys, If you guys don't know, Ed Weiss was in our lab today and did one of our swallowing studies. And we learned a lot about this swallowing expert who swallow is not yeah. so expert. I mean, they say it's what's inside that counts. Yeah. Yeah. And we well, yeah. got a clear I know. today. <laughs> so anyway, the point is, let's take the Mendelssohn. A lot of people say, oh, do the Mendelssohn for UES. Now, the literature actually does not support that. Can I just say you that black on the Mendelssohn? The last like four podcasts. In I'm a row. saying. <laughs> I mean, look. The point is that the Mendelssohn. You know, the point of that study was to show UES is one of the things that opens more with more elevation, but a lot of other things did more. Mm-hmm. You know, I bet you if you do a Mendelssohn, you probably get more pharyngeal this and more uh, laryngeal that and more velar this. I mean, mm-hmm. there there are pressure studies that show that these things have longer durations, like some of the studies out of Tim McCullough's lab, for instance, on high resolution manometry. Does that mean you do a Mendelssohn for longer pharyngeal pressure, though? No one's saying that. And then we have finally... But I think, York- that, but I think yeah, some people are saying that. But, but the point is, the work... I have an issue with a table that says, if you have this problem, do that. Yeah, that's that. my issue. I'm not yeah. saying... I'm saying that's great that, that people are saying it, but a table that says X equals yeah, no, Y I don't think doesn't... It's a doesn't one. Exactly. But to say... So here are, you know, from all the conglomeration of research, here are some possible outcomes if you use a Mendelssohn. Mm-hmm. Or here are some possible Absolutely. outcomes if you use an effortful swallow. Exactly. Or here's, but yeah. let's not but translate why, that into a why, flowchart. But why can't, why can't people just read the literature and see for themselves what won't. it said? This is what I don't understand. Why this goes to the point of people wanting a table. I could see a summary of abstracts and showing the range of things they found for that one thing. Mm-hmm. For everywhere from Carillas 1989 or wherever the heck that one was or 92 all the way to Yoko Inamoto like 19, 2017 showing oh the Mendelssohn doesn't do that to the UES mm-hmm. you want to show the range mm-hmm. I'm not saying take those papers out but it's not a do this for that that's my right. shit okay I'm done. Yeah. yeah it's not a cookbook oh this brings you into the mix <sighs> advice normal question mark confirmation bias so the argument that we were having here is that people walk into a situation where there's a patient sitting there, they don't look so good. And does confirmation bias mean that if they have a functional swallow, you're more likely to call it disordered? Just because you confirmation bias means if you expect for something to happen, you confirm it when you see it, whether it was actually that thing or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You look for things to validate. You your, look for things to validate your, your assumptions. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, after today, I was quite serious in saying that if the average clinician had put me under fluoro and didn't know who I was, 
Mm-hmm. Didn't know my medical background and saw, just saw what happened on fluoro today. Mm-hmm. I would be on an altered diet and I would be in therapy. So if there was a picture of somebody in the bed, right, who had a gown on, had maybe a tube coming out and just looked, just didn't look a little disheveled, but cognitively intact. And then we said, this is the patient, this is their history, we showed that same aspirate, that same swallow you aspirated on. And we said, is it disordered? Would you treat it? You get way more yes. Then we see you here with your beautiful tweed shirt, jacket, not sans bow tie, mind you. He's, he's cash. He's cash. Um, you know, your horn rimmed glasses with your hands crossed, looking astute as ever, right? And we say, this is this gentleman's swallow. People go, huh, well, I don't know. I'd ask him. I, I, I'd investigate more because it doesn't look like it should be his swallow. So now we're literally judging a book by its cover. Yep. I mean, this has to happen so often in the intensive care unit where you walk into a patient's room and you've already decided yeah. what diet they're mm-hmm. going to be on. I mean, provided sometimes that is appropriate. Yeah. Patients get sick and, yeah, and sure. they're not appropriate to be eating. But, but it shouldn't be 100% practice. Absolutely. You have somebody that has, you, you see it's the environments, the lines, the tubes, the drains. You're around mm-hmm. medical professionals. You're hearing alarms. All those things sensationalize your mm-hmm. your um perceptions of what you're going to see in a swallow so you take your swallow today in that environment and you are oh right gosh. so that's why i'm getting the metal bracelet that says no epigotic inversion yeah, that's right <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know so some slp doesn't get a hold of you later on and put you on a diet right exactly well that's i mean you know again that's you wouldn't we never would have thought we'd do a course on normal and you were at our very first ctdm mm-hmm. and we never even had a section explaining normal but then at the end of every meeting someone will go okay you've just told me i basically don't know what a normal swallow is how can i learn you know i've been practicing for 20 years and i didn't know xyz that's the only reason we have this course on normal and it's funny that you happen to come down to see your own floral because you're going to be one of how many other people who attend who see their own floral and go holy crap i would peg myself if i knew that i swallowed like that like <laughs> Like, sign me up for the surgery. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Self-preservation does not make effective rehabilitation. I think this goes back to what we're we're conversing about before, which is if you're busy trying to worry about how people perceive you, Mm -hmm. you can't give the most effective therapy. Correct. Okay. Last one. Oh, it's a doozy. So we got to be waiting guys staring at the end of the, the <laughs> sorry, sheet. Sorry. <laughs> All right, this one is diet modification. I'm going to let Ed take it away. What is what is your worry about 2017 and the things that you've seen related to diet modification? So one of my greatest worries about diet modification is <laughs> that we don't understand food. That we are not nutritionists. We do not understand the impact of the decisions that we are making and what they are doing to our patients from a nutrition and hydration standpoint because we don't understand food. And we're so worried about the physical or the the physiology, the biomechanical part of swallowing and what it's impacting to the swallowing. What is what we're doing impacting the whole body. How is can it I, impacting the whole body? Can I be devil's advocate just for fun? Because no. I feel like you feel really passionately about this. And oh, I just yeah, want to, I want to represent what maybe a lot of people are thinking right now mm-hmm. for purposes of conversation. Um, that's not our job. There are nutritionists out there. And I, I collaborate with mine. And I collaborate. And my job, you know, I, I look at the physiology and I make um, 
assessments and, and diagnoses based on that physiology and it's a nutritionist job to deal with that okay so then my question back to you is so what class did you take that taught you how to prescribe diets oh that's such a powerful mm -hmm. question ed and they'll say well my dysphagia yep. class talked about it but you're right it is so it's such a big thing to tell somebody what that a food a food group for instance is off that's not what we do but a pediatric pediatrician, for instance, does not lightly say your child can't have dairy. Oh, this is an infant who drinks milk. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They have to think carefully about educating the parent and saying, while this is an allergy thing, I'm not going to just drop the bomb and say they can't have dairy. I'm going to say they're not. This is probably going to close up their throat and see a nutritionist. Like it's a yeah. both and. You understand the, mm -hmm. the, the impetus or the impact that you're gonna have. And I think what you're saying is, the extent to which we modify diets, you think we understand so much about it because mm -hmm. we do it so willy-nilly, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. When I took the, my dysphagia course, the very first slide that Dr. Brodsky showed when he taught that class is we have two goals. One is patient safety. The other is adequate nutrition and hydration. And those are the two goals. And I think too much we focus on the first one, mm -hmm. which is safety and neglect. I knew even know how I feel about that word, safety. I love of that course. you have an issue with that word because mm -hmm. I think I use that word inappropriately after you're bringing that up today. And I remember specifically, and I remember we wrote it for a grant and in the grant we had to be very clear and we define, operationally defined. We have scientists yeah. either and they're very objective and they know that we have our parameters. But you're right, when it comes to a clinical audience we have to be careful about using the word unsafe yeah unsafe you can't say unsafe and say but don't be so so scary calm down don't be so risk averse but that's the word we use and is that so really when you think about safe and unsafe do we really mean aspirated and non-aspirated bullets but not putting too much interpretation on the extent to which it is unsafe when aspirated because then it becomes not everybody emotional. exactly not everyone who aspirates gets pneumonia right. but when we say unsafe it assumes but that. we are able to make um we are able to make some educated there is context here a patient that is post-lung transplant in the ICU is different than a patient that's outpatient. And I think we do have to consider that. But we throw the word around too loosely. I agree. Yes. completely agree. Because, I think there's just a way to color it. Right, because today, the, so the gentleman came and he's been eating for six months, right? Yeah. And he's yeah. been, and in the beginning it was aspirating the majority of what was going into his mm -hmm. oral cavity. He was. And so, well, he's really been eating the past six weeks. Oh, okay. He's really been like ramping Okay, up. six yeah. weeks. But, mm -hmm. you know, so the discussion was that his initial instrumental so this is what's safe and this is what's unsafe mm -hmm, but he's mm -hmm. been eating for six weeks and he's fine and so he's clearly nothing right. is unsafe right, right? yeah exactly there but we, we had a patient more recently where i'm telling you if a drop gets in this man's airway he's just walking upstairs to the ed for right. antibiotics for pneumonia right and in that situation we didn't know what would happen at the end it's a good point alicia so ed listen to this mm -hmm. so there was a guy that we just talked about the brainstem guy right mm -hmm. we said this is unsafe and for months, he's been chugging down burgers, and he didn't get a darn anything. Mm -hmm. Then we have somebody else. Risk profile is relatively similar. Actually swallows way better compared to the yeah. brainstem stroke guy. every day. Exactly. Some time afterward, he had an infection related to some totally other things. And one thing that they also diagnosed while in the hospital was pneumonia. We don't know if it's aspiration pneumonia, but we also can't say that it wasn't. Now... 
this is somebody who, what if that was an unsafe bolus, right? But see, but you, I think you just validated my point. Yeah. Is that we don't have enough information to say what's safe and unsafe. So don't say it. So let's use different mm-hmm. words. Like, I agree. Like what? I agree. Yeah. So let's talk about what actually happened. So you aspirate yeah. this mm-hmm. and here are... So don't use categories that we can't define. But, but I think Ed is telling me what I tell files. people at CTDM all the time. Yeah. And I think they we can, can talk about... I, think <laughs> I listen. I, I listen. know. Yeah. I think we can talk about risk profiles. I think that that's a really important thing. Mm-hmm. I loved um, Dr. Steele when she came here and we were talking about, I think it ended up getting edited out. We got you this like, research when she gig. Came here. <laughs> she came here and she talked about that in, maybe instead of reporting definitive penetration aspiration scales, p-value, oh. significant, not significant, we need to talk about um, risk ratios and you know things that paint a picture of that's not just so black and white. Mm-hmm. I agree mm-hmm. with that. And I like that. And I think we need to incorporate that with our patients. I agree. Too. It's, it's a picture. You're painting mm-hmm. a picture and you're... And not have these black and white words. Yeah. This is safe. This is unsafe. This so is... that's a tangible thing that I will definitely mm-hmm. take into 2018 and beyond. Thank you, Ed, for that. Mm-hmm. Is there something that you all, as we close, will take into 2018 or hope that others do? Oh, I'm taking into a much broader view of normal swallowing. And mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to the normal swallowing class because I've already taken your online course. Mm-hmm. I've listened to you talk in, in uh, critical thinking five times now mm-hmm. uh, about yeah. that. But it still doesn't resonate because I've looked at so many swallow studies before I really started thinking about what is normal. Yeah. You've you looked st- at so many just, patient swallow studies, right? right? Yeah, okay, yeah. I see. That, you still want to default back to, oh, but look, there's this. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. but, oh, mm-hmm. but. And let me just say, for the therapists out there that are rolling their eyes at ugh, a normal swallowing class, guys, please. Like, I've been practicing. Like, I got this. I'm in my third year of normal swallowing training, <laughs> which is also known as a PhD. <laughs> and I, it has blown my mind. My practice has completely changed more from what I've learned about normal swallowing than what I've learned about disordered swallowing. And it's really made me reflect on how much overdiagnosing that I've done in my clinical career of overdiagnosing impairments and patients in general that were just normal. Mm-hmm. That maybe I had um, preconceived they were functional. They were, I had functional. A bias. They were functional that I had a bias going in that, well, this patient was referred to me and they have all these comorbidities, like something's gotta be wrong. Mm-hmm. Right, so I'm looking for it right. mm-hmm. in the swallow, and I right. think that um, I think that my understanding of normal swallowing has certainly evolved over the past um, few years, and I think that that's single-handedly made the biggest impact on my clinical expertise. Yeah. So as an analogy, I think I used to have a ruler, and I used to try to say you have to fit. You know, I'm measuring, and you have to fit this, and now it's more like a bowl of water, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's very fluid, yeah, and it's very adaptable. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And it makes life, again, much more difficult. It's not easy because now, again, there's another answer taken away. You know, right. the rug is pulled out from under me. I can't just say, oh, there's residue in your follicula, so this is what we're going to do. Right. It's, right. It, yeah. We're therapists. We want to do something. And I think people feel that way. There's that tendency of wanting to fix stuff, but you do more for the patient by letting them go. Yeah. Just go and eat. Don't come in every week and do an hour of therapy. Let me sit there and watch you and count your coughs. And, yeah. You know, it's ridiculous. And even the brainstem stroke patient said that they would put Eastam on him and then he'd go off to oh my God. Go, go off to PT while the Eastam was on his neck and then 
come back. Like that was his therapy. He didn't yeah. necessarily do anything. They just put it on. He yeah. worked with PT and that was his therapy. And then they take it off. And then yeah. they take it yeah. off. Right. So this is, and this is not like 10 years ago, guys. Like, and this was not like in rural America. Either. No, no, we won't say where it was, no, but, but, but that's it wasn't, not the point. Yeah. Yeah. So Alicia, what are you taking into 2018? What am I taking into 2018? Yeah. Or what do you hope people consider for 2018? Well, I'll say what I'm taking in because it's it's too easy to point the finger at other people, right? And say, this is what I think that you mm -hmm. all should do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really interested in learning more about electrical stimulation in 2018. Um, I've learned a lot in the past year about eSTEM that I did not know. Mm -hmm. And it's an area that I sort of avoided like the Black Plague <laughs> um, for a long time. And now that I've learned more about it, I'm really interested in uh, researching it and understanding what does eSIM do, what does it not do, mm -hmm. um, to, to just understand how it impacts the physiology more. So this brings us full circle to the very first thing that we said in the beginning, <laughs> which is a course needs to happen by a non-industry mm -hmm. biased group about eSIM. And so perhaps we could create an online course with some of those basic things mm -hmm. and add it to you know one of the websites that we already have running where people can access that and just learn hey i don't care what you buy i don't yeah. I, I don't have a dog in this race guys. it's interesting because i learned easton from you without any idea of the different companies so like even the other uh, it was like a couple weeks ago we were talking about this this device debate and i was like what are we even using our lab i don't yeah. even know yeah right? and it wasn't probably until today that i, I just know the company was. like i yeah. just know East them. That's great. Yeah. Well, happy New Year's, guys. Same to you. Oh, I'm sorry. I need to edit that. Happy New Year. That is one of my biggest pet peeves. <laughs> and I add that S on that. Happy New Year's. Guys, we're only going in one. One. Yeah. yeah. Calm down. Don't get excited. <laughs> you might not make the next one. I know. Yeah. I know about you. <laughs> but I'm saying New Year's. I plan on living. Right? <laughs> All right. Great podcast.